to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 95 where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and from the creaking hinges of a mummy's casket in a haunted cemetery during the full moon. Very, uh, June is a very scary month. The worst. As uh, most of us know, that is the, uh, the witch's month. Uh, this episode is actually uh, informally dedicated to Chris Carnes of the Bat Books for Beginners and Professor Frenzy Show podcast. And he'll know why, because the book that we're reading today is Creepy Number One from 1964, in order, as listed on the contents page. Publisher is James Warren. Editor is Russ Janes. Story Ideas by Joe Orlando, Lettering by Ben Oda, Artists, Reed Crandall, Jack Davis, did the cover, George Evans, Frank Frazetta, Gray Morrow, Joe Orlando, Angelo Torres, Al Williamson, Maurice Whitman. Cover price is 35 cents. I like how they kind of smash the artist together, you know what I mean? That kind of shows you, I think, where the uh, industry's head is at, yeah. you know? <laughs> Just like, the publisher is at the very top, and here's the guys that drew the thing. They're yeah, all yeah. So... Here's the guy, the guys who actually uh, wore the boots on the ground. Exactly. Uh, now, since he was the first guy on the credits page, let's, uh, let's hear about James Warren and Warren Publishing. He was born James Warren Tubman on July 29th, 1930 at Mount Sinai Hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. An art student during his grammar school and high school years, he came in second one year in the Pennsylvania State Scholastic Art Competition. James attended the University of Pennsylvania School of Architecture and served in the ROTC, leaving his junior year to enlist in the United States Army when the Korean War began. He was accepted into the Armored Infantry Officers Training, and uh, he was deafened six months later during training when he got too close to the 50 caliber machine, heavy machine gun. Which, uh, that's not cool. That's too bad. Uh, yeah. Uh, he was medically discharged a few months later and did not return to Penn State. Luckily, you don't need hearing to publish magazines, apparently. It is true. Uh, in the 1950s, Warren worked in advertising as an artist and a writer. He was inspired by Hugh Hefner's magazine, Playboy. You might have heard of that one. And he launched his own men's magazine, After Hours, which lasted four issues and led to his arrest on charges of obscenity and pornography in Philadelphia. In a 1999 interview with comic book artist James recalled, A lot of publishers said, look at all that money. Look at all those Playboy sales. Let's put out an imitation. And by the time 35 Playboy imitations came out, mine was one of them. It was called After Hours. I got my, and I got my first experience with national magazine distributors and retailers and with large magazine printing plants. It lasted four issues. It was awful. I learned the hard way about Teamsters, Truckers, Loading Docks, slowdowns at printing plants, and bankers who Welsh on you. Through After Hours, though, Warren met his future collaborator, Hollywood literary agent Forrest J. Ackerman, 
who submitted the pictorial feature Girls from Science Fiction Movies. Following correspondence and telephone calls, they met in person in New York City in late 1957. There, Ackerman showed Warren a horror movie-themed issue of the French magazine Cinema 57. Recalling his youth seeing black-and-white horror movies in theaters and realizing many of those movies were playing on television to a new generation of children, he was inspired to launch an accompanying magazine. He says, carefully crafted to spoof, to spoof the monsters and yet treat them as heroes. The adults wouldn't buy it, but the kids, those millions of baby boomers, would. A few weeks later, I was in 4A Ackerman's living room in California, choosing the photos and article content for a one-shot magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland that went on sale that January with a February 1958 cover date. Warren said it sold out its 200,000 print run within days. Yeah, you know, I remember seeing, uh, you know, monster mags like that as a kid and wondering, you know, who wants to read about Frankenstein and stuff? But I didn't realize sure. that this was stemming from this baby boomer Revival of these monsters going from you know the the 30s the movie they, they the released on television. TV, yeah, uh, it was I was still seeing the Hangover from that. By the time I was a kid, though, it was already all about you know Freddy, Jason, and those kind yeah, of guys. Fangoria. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, that kind of magazine. Uh, anyway, so uh, James financed the first issue, for which the upstate New York printer wanted payment up front uh, through some advance money from my distributor, Cable News. James Warren recalled, but I was nine thousand dollars short. I walked into a bank in Philadelphia to plead for a loan. I said, I'm not going to tell you anything about the magazine, but I need this loan. The banker said, for collateral, you'll pledge your printing presses and your equipment. We require that as collateral against the loan. I said, my entire equipment list consists of a typewriter, two yellow pads, a drawing board, and me. I have a distributor and an idea for a magazine, and I have a printer, but I need $9,000. I told him I wasn't going to leave the bank without the money. I must have sounded threatening because I got the loan. The printer got his money up front, and the magazines were shipped, the newsstands sold out, and Warren Publishing Company was born. A second issue was published eight months later because I had to wait until the money came in from the first issue, and Cable wouldn't advance it to me. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine going to a bank and saying, I'm not leaving until you give me the money? I think if you, I think yeah. if you did that now, you would be leaving in uh, shackles. That's how it would work. <laughs> if you leave at all. Yeah, right. um, now, <laughs> Warren moved to New York City in the 1960s, uh, though leaving the uh, Captain Company, the mail-order firm he, cur- he concurrently founded to sell horror-related items in Philadelphia. He found a duplex penthouse in Midtown Manhattan, where he lived on the top floor, using the ground floor living room, dining room, bath, and kitchen as Warren Publishing's editorial office. By the time he was publishing, in addition to Famous Monsters, the uh, magazine's Western, um, sorry, Wildest Westerns, Spacemen, and the satirical magazine Help. Uh, in the in mid-1960s, inspired by the EC comics of the 50s, Warren launched the black-and-white horror comics magazines Creepy, Eerie, and Vampirella. And we've got the first one of one of those coming up in just a little bit. But first, it's important, I think, to say why this magazine is unique. Uh, you know, at, at this time, there were no horror comics. And of course, we know why. We went through all this in a series of episodes of Weird Comics History, the first five of them, in fact. But the fast and dirty version of this uh, for this episode is that in 1954, facing pressure from parents groups and under scrutiny by the Senate, the comics industry imposed a code on itself, uh, a morality code or, you know, a, a whatever you call restricting code. Yeah. Uh, this would eliminate many of the kid-unfriendly themes in comics and introduced a few arbitrary rules besides. 
But this was the death knell for what had been a burgeoning, and I mean burgeoning horror comics industry, hundreds of titles and uh, you know dozens of publishers pretty much folded up overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, creepy and eerie magazines, however, published by Warren Publishing were black and white publications in a standard magazine format rather than comic book size, and they sold for 35 cents as opposed to the standard comic book price of 12 cents. Such a format averted the restrictions of the Comics Code Authority. Warren would explain, the Comics Code saved the industry from turmoil, but at the same time it had a cleansing kind of effect on comics, making them clean, proper, and family-oriented. We would overcome this by saying to the Code Authority, the industry, the printers, and the distributors, we are not a comic book, we are a magazine. Creepy is a magazine is magazine sized and will be sold on magazine racks, not comic book racks. Creepy's manifesto was brief and direct. First, it was to be a magazine a magazine format eight and a half by eleven, going to an older audience, not subject to the code authority. And again, you can check out Weird Comics History, the first five episodes available in the archives for way more details mm-hmm. on that whole shebang. Yeah. Uh, it's it's also available as a box set at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com or if our YouTube t- channel's back up yet, it's there too. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, go to, go to the uh, blog spot uh, place. Blog's better, you yeah. Be. So now we'll jump right into the issue. We have a lot of creators to get through, obviously, and obviously we're not going to give uh, any of them their true due in bio. You know, we had to truncate them for the purposes of fitting them in a show, but a lot of these guys definitely could and do deserve an expanded uh, look someday. But anyway, creepy number one, covered by Jack Davis. This is John Burton, Jack Davis Jr., born on December 2nd, 1924, in Atlanta, Georgia. As a child, he adored listening to Bob Hope on the radio and tried to draw him, despite not knowing what Hope looked like. I'd love to see what those drawings Absolutely, look like yeah. if you got the ski slope nose or anything. <laughs> uh, Davis's first comic book publication was at the age of 12, when he contributed a cartoon to the reader's page of Tip Top Comics number 9. That was a December 1936 cover date. He spent three years in the U.S. Navy, where he contributed to the Daily Navy News. Attending the University of Georgia on the GI Bill, he drew for the campus newspaper and helped launch an off-campus humor publication, Bullshit. Uh, he described this as not political or anything, but just something with risque jokes and cartoons. In 1949, he illustrated a Coca-Cola training manual. There's a job that gave him enough money to buy a car and drive to New York. After rejections from several comic book publishers, he began freelancing for William Gaines's EC Comics in 1950. In 2011, Davis told the Wall Street, the Wall Street Journal, "I was about to, I was about ready to give up, go home to Georgia, and either be a forest ranger or a farmer." But I went down to Canal Street in Lafayette. Uh, it was actually Spring Street in Lafayette. That's all right. Uh, Uh, (laughs) Why not? Uh, Up an old rickety elevator and through a glass door to entertaining comics where Al Felstein and Bill Gaines were putting out horror comic books. They looked at my work and it was horrible. (laughs) They gave me a job right away. Uh, Every time you went in to see Bill Gaines, he would write you a check when you brought in a story. You didn't have to put in a bill or anything. I was very, very hungry and I was thinking about getting married. So I kept the road pretty hot between home and Canal Street. I would go in for that almighty check, go home and do the work, bring it in and get another check, and pick up another story. Seems like a pretty sweet deal to me if you can get it going. I think, yeah. Uh, Davis appeared in most of the first first 30 issues of Mad, all 12 issues of Panic, and even did some work in Cracked. 
Although he contributed to all of EC's titles, just best known for the humor and the horror stuff. Uh, Davis contributed to other Harvey Kurtzman magazines, Trump, Humbug, and Help, which came after Mad Magazine in his time at EC, eventually expanding into illustrations for record jackets, movie posters, books and magazines, including Time and many, many covers on TV Guide. And uh, we go over Kurtzman and those other publications of his in Weird Comics History, Episode 12, the first part of our series on underground comics. Now, the editors, William M. Games, Albert B. Feldstein, and Harvey Kurtzman, have said that Davis was the fastest artist they had in those days, completely penciling and inking three or more pages at a, a day at times. That is very, very oh, yeah. fast work. Yeah, that's, that's, wow. that's Kirby speed right there, boy. Yeah. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> now, his use of, a br- of the brush to create depth and mood was unique and memorable. His wrinkled clothing, scratchy lines, and multi-layered layouts were so popular in the 1950s that other artists at rival companies would begin copying his style. Notably, Howard Nostrand in uh, Harvey's Horror Comics. I could, I could say here, too, that when I was a kid and I would draw... Pretty much when I saw Jack Davis's uh, drawings, is really, and maybe it says more about me, but I stopped. Basically, I was like, "Oh, <laughs> yeah, I'll never, I'm never gonna." There's do no that. way. <laughs> I was like, I'll, I'll, "I'll look at other things. That we'll do something else." <laughs> now, in the uh, late '50s, Davis drew western stories for Atlas Comics. His 1963 work on the Rawhide Kid, that's issues 33 through 35, was his last for non-humor comic books. He'd return as a regular contributor to Mad Magazine in the mid-60s and appeared in nearly every issue for the rest of the decade, or for the rest of several decades. Um, He also drew many of the covers of the magazine, especially during the 70s. However, before that, he'd contribute to the very issue we're about to discuss of Creepy. Uh, Now, Jack would pass away in St. Simon Island, Georgia, where he lived with his wife, Dina. Yeah, there might have been a date there at one time, but there's not anymore. Anyway, (laughs) uh, the cover is yellow with a big red creepy logo. The logo isn't really very creepy. Actually, it just sort of reads creepy, uh, sort of stylized little logo. Below it reads, comics to give you the creeps, collector's edition. So I guess number one issues were a thing back then, too. Mm, tale as old as time yep. uh, Now the uh, the image by Jack Davis is in four color And uh, features the magazine's host Named Creepy Reading an issue of Creepy <laughs> While various creatures and monsters huddle around his chair uh, On the cover of the issue of Creepy That Creepy is reading Is Creepy himself Whoa. That's very creepy <laughs> uh, Now he sort of looks like a zombified Ebenezer Scrooge uh, Now Frankenstein's monster is leaning On the back of Creepy's chair the other characters are fairly nondescript, hideous lumps. Uh, one of them kind of looks like a Jawa from Star Wars, actually. Yeah, with a nose poking out. I don't know what that's With a nose poking out of the little cloak there, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, on the inside cover, we get a headshot of Creepy addressing the reader. Yes, and Creepy says, <laughs> Welcome! Welcome to the comic world's newest, most exciting, and most imaginative magazine in ten years. I'm Creepy, your nauseating host. I've scrounged around the lowest places imaginable to dig up the comic industry's fastest, most fiendish artists. Their psychotic drawings, along with insane scripts of the inmates we have under contract here at Creepy Headquarters, should make for the most enjoyable reading fair your wild minds could ever crave. Yeah, I'm going to hand it to old Creepy here. Uh, it's nice to, to hear that this publication employs the mentally ill. A lot of, a lot of companies won't even yeah. give them the time of no, day. No, that is very forward-thinking. A lot yeah. of those guys, they don't, get a, they don't get a break. Ah, 
but before you turn the page and lick your chops at all of the goodies we have in store, bear in mind, this is not just another comic book. This is a comic magazine with a purpose. A comic that carries a flaming message to every would-be ghoul that reads it. Creepy is different. I just wanted to buy a magazine. I wasn't really looking to join a religion. <laughs> creepy is expensive. But creepy is the start of a great <gasps> new wonderful world of repulsive entertainment for readers who appreciate the best uh, in comics. Yeah, this part of the sales pitch isn't working very well. I, I wouldn't have gone down this road myself. I got yeah. You, know, you don't lead with uh, how expensive the thing is. Yeah. <laughs> he finishes up to say, But enough of this! Start reading and see for yourselves as you feast your bloodshot eyeballs on comics guaranteed to leave you senseless with delight. And as we start reading, the next page is a Table of Contents and Indicia. So we will jump right past that into the stories. The first of which is called Voodoo, story by Russ Jones. Russ Jones was born July 16, 1942 in Ontario, Canada. While in the Marine Corps, uh, Jones worked on Leatherneck magazine. Arriving in New York, he teamed with Wally Wood and Joe Orlando on several comics-related projects, some for Warren Publishing. He penciled DC Comics' Mystery in, Mystery in Space, and his slick brush inking provided a polish to many of DC's romance comics. Uh, some inked in collaboration with Bob Stewart, that's B-H-O-B, Stewart. Uh, Jones and Stewart also teamed on scripts and art for Charlton Comics' Ghostly Tales. Russ Jones Productions' Dracula from Ballantine, Ballantine Books 1966 was an adaptation of Bram Stoker's tale into a graphic novel illustrated by Alden McWilliams with text by Otto Binder and, Greg, and Craig Tennis. Uh, Russ is best known as the creator of the magazine Creepy for Warren Publishing. Yep, the very thing we're reading right now. That's right. Uh, <laughs> stories also, somehow, by Bill Pearson. William Pearson was born July 27, 1938 in Belfort. South Dakota. I might be pronouncing that wrong, but I'm sorry. Pearson, Pearson was employed in 1957 as a technical illustrator at the Ziff Davis publishing firm and began night classes at the School of Visual Arts. Bill found work as a technical illustrator for the Underwood Typewriter Company in 1959, which was followed by, uh, by two years as a mechanical draftsman in Motorola at Phoenix, Arizona. While he would sold his creator-owned anthology zine Witsend to him for a buck, during the mid to late 1960s, Pearson was an artist and production manager with the Manhattan art agency Admaster Prints, which had many national clients, and this helped bankroll sporadic printings of Witsend, which, by the way, was an uh, anthology of creator-owned comics, essentially, is, all, is uh, what it was. And uh, during that time, in somewhere, he wrote or co-wrote this story. Mm-hmm. Across the table, we got Joe Orlando. Joseph Orlando was born on April 4th, 1927 in Bari, Italy. His family would emigrate to the United States in 1929. Joe attended art classes at a neighborhood boys club from ages 7 through 14. In 1941, he began attending the School of Industrial Art, later the High School of Art and Design, where he studied illustration. While Orlando was still a student, he drew his first published illustrations, their scenes of Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper, for a high school textbook. After his high school graduation, Orlando entered the U.S. Army and was assigned to the military police. This was followed by 18 months in Europe. After his 1947 discharge, he returned to New York and began study at the Art Students League on the GI Bill. 
Joe entered the comic book field in 1949 when the packager Lloyd Jacquet had signed him to draw for the Catholic-oriented book Treasure Chest. In the early 1950s, he was an assistant to Wally Wood on stories for several publishers, including Fox, Youthful, Avon, and EC Comics, before becoming a regular staff artist with the EC in the summer of 1951. After EC, from 1956 to 1959, Joe drew classics illustrated adaptations including Ben-Hur, A Tale of Two Cities, and Rudyard Kipling's Kim. In addition to many contributions to EC's Mad from 1960 to 69, Orlando also scripted the Little Orphan Annie comic strip beginning in 1964. He and Tex Blaisdell worked on it together. For Warren Publishing's black and white horror comics magazine Creepy, debuting in 1964, Orlando was not only an illustrator but also a story editor on early issues. His credit on the first issue masthead reads story ideas, Joe Orlando. And uh, hey, we're reading that first issue Here we right are. this yeah, minute. All right. <laughs> now, uh, Voodoo opens with a splash page featuring a woman dancing wildly around a fire, while a guy holding a chicken is about to slaughter it with a machete. Oh. A bunch of folks look on in wonder, some of them beating drums. Uh, it, what we're trying to say is it's, a, it's a, probably a voodoo ritual. It looks folks. that way, yeah. <laughs> Creepy explains, uh, that's the host, of course, that Frank and Sylvia Prentice have lived on the edge of a jungle in Haiti for two years. Frank has become a miserable drunk, but Sylvia is interested in voodoo. So one night, Sylvia comes home with a shrunken head. Uh, If you don't know, a shrunken head is a severed and specially prepared human head that is used for trophy, ritual, or trade purposes. So uh, check out the film Faces of Death for more information. I don't really know. Or I would not recommend it. (laughs) A shrunken head, it's what it sounds like, folks. So uh, Frank finds the shrunken head gross and chucks it out the window. Sylvia (laughs) Sylvia leaves angrily, which suits him just fine. Frank proceeds to spend the next few weeks carousing with women and getting drunk. Though, I guess, getting drunk wasn't really a new thing for Frank. More the the, the womanizing was the, the, the big thing for The him. new part, yeah. yeah. That was the novelty. Yeah. Uh, one night, during a restless sleep, Frank hears a ghostly voice from the jungle calling his name. It says, Frank, come to me. And like an idiot, he goes. <laughs> really? Uh, <laughs> he, he finds Sylvia, who plans to get revenge. I mean, because Frank dismissed voodoo? But, well, it seems really petty. You know, just threw a her, little bit. Threw her shrunken head out the window. Just go get it and relax. You know, I don't That's know. it. <laughs> you just might have to keep it in someone else's house. That's all. Uh, now she rushes at Frank with a machete. But in a curious set of circumstances, Sylvia lops her own head off. Whoops. Uh, yeah, that's a, that, that, that's a pain. Uh, uh, Frank runs through the jungle, hearing Sylvia's voice calling after him, and he's being driven mad along the way. Finally, Frank finds himself before Sylvia again. But she's got a shrunken <laughs> head on her neck. <laughs> now, let me tell you, folks, it looks as ridiculous as it sounds. It really is hilarious. <laughs> what do look at? Like a Transformer or something. <laughs> now, Sylvia pops Fred's head right off his neck and lumbers off, presumably to shrink the head but good, uh, and maybe to uh, make a nice uh, nice uh, stock with the skull. That's right. Boil that nice down. soup make a, base, yeah. Exactly. Throw some uh, carrots and celery in there. You got something great. Mm-hmm. So on to the next story, H2O World. This story is by Larry Ivey. He was born in 1936 in Salt Lake City, Utah, described by comics historian Bill Shelley as the closest thing to an authority of comics that was available in the 1950s. Larry moved to New York City in the mid-1950s to attend the School of Visual Arts. 
With a large personal library of comic books and correspondence via fanzines, he became a prominent part of New York Comics fan culture, which was probably just burgeoning right at that moment. Mm-hmm. Larry self-published the seven issues of his own newsstand magazine, Monsters and Heroes, for which he drew comic stories of his own superhero, Altron Boy, in the mid to late 60s. He provided painted covers of other editorial material for early issues of Castle of Frankenstein magazine, which began in 63. Larry Ivey had his art published in the magazine's Galaxy Science Fiction and If. He co-created the comic book Thunder Agents, T-H-U-N-D-E-R, Agents with Wally Wood, and he wrote several stories for Marvel Comics and the horror magazines Creepy and Eerie, including this story right here. He died of lung cancer in 2014. Across the table sits Al Williamson. Alfonso Al Williamson was born March 21, 1931 in Manhattan. In 1997, Williamson would recall, My father was Colombian and my mother was American. They met in the States, got married, and went down there. I grew up down there, so I learned both English and Spanish at the same time. It was comic books that taught me to read both languages. Uh, The family relocated to Bogota, Colombia when Al was two years old. In, at age 12 in 1943, Williamson moved with his mother to San Francisco, California. Uh, they would later move to New York. In the mid-40s, Williamson continued to pursue his interest in cartooning and began to take art classes with Tarzan cartoonist Bern Hogarth and later at Hogarth's Cartoonists and Illustrators School. There, he met future cartoonists Wally Wood and Roy Crankle. Uh, Williamson's first professional work may have been helping Hogarth pencil some Tarzan Sunday pages in 1948. Though, in a 1983 interview, Al reconsidered and recalled his first two pieces of comic book art, providing spot il- those, are being po- the, those are providing spot illustrations for the story The World's Ugliest Horse, that appeared in Famous Funnies number 166, May 1948 cover date, also a two-page Boy Scout story in New Heroic Comics number 51 that had a November 1948 cover date. From 1949 to 1951, Williamson worked on science fiction and Western stories for publishers publishers such as American Comics Group, also known as AGC, Avon Publications, Fawcett Comics, Standard Comics, and possibly Toby Press. I'm not sure why it's possibly, but that's <laughs> how it was couched uh, in the research. Uh, examples of his work from that period include Chief Victorio's Last Stand and Avon's Chief Victorio's Apache Mac- Massacre. This had no number, no month, but it came out in 1951. <laughs> also uh, d- worked on Death in Deep Space in Magazine Enterprises' Jet Number 4, No Month, but came out in 1951. And Skull and the Sorcerer in, AG- in ACG's Forbidden Worlds Number 3, that was December 1951, inked by Wally Wood. In 1952, on the suggestion of artists Wally Wood and Joe Orlando, Williamson began working for EC Comics. He primarily worked on EC's science fiction comics Weird Science, Weird Fantasy, and Weird Science Fantasy, illustrating both original stories and adaptations of stories by authors such as Ray Bradbury and Harlan Ellison. Williamson worked at EC through 1956 until the cancellation of most of the company's line. From 55 to 57, Williamson produced over 400 pages of three to five page stories for Atlas Comics. From 1958 to 59, Williamson worked for Harvey Comics. He collaborated with former EC artists Reed Crandall, Torres, and Crankle, uh, and inking the pages of Jack Kirby for Race to the Moon number two and three and Blast Off number one. Additionally, Williamson drew stories for Classic Illustrated, uh, Carnival Press's line of Edgar Rice Burroughs books, westerns for Dell Comics and Charlton Comics, and science fiction stories for ACG. 
1960, with a little work with little work to be found in the comic book field due to a downturn in the industry, he went to work as an assistant to John Prentice on the comic strip Rip Kirby, and that was a three-year period of that. And after that, he drew the story for the first issue of Creepy Magazine that we are about to read very, very shortly. Hey. Uh, he would pass away June 12, 2010, in upstate New York. But this one also has two people credited for art. The other guy is Roy Crinkle. We're guessing he had to be the inker in this case. Probably, and when, huh? you, and when you when you hear how tight Crinkle, uh, Williamson, and Joe Orlando, these guys were, I have a feeling they they worked in each other's stuff quite a lot and kind of maybe blurred the lines of who was doing what. But uh, anyway, Roy Gerald Crinkle was born July 11th, 1918. He studied with George Bridgman at the Art Students League of New York, and after World War II. He attended Bern Hogarth's classes at the Cartoonist and Illustrator School. That's the Tarzan guy. Uh, that became the School of Visual Arts. Frank Frazetta, who met Roy during this period, noted, I met Roy Krenko back in 1949 or 1950, and he has never ceased to be a constant source of inspiration to me, a truly conscientious artist who will not tolerate incompetence. Krenko sometimes collaborated with Frazetta and Williamson on the pages that Trio drew for EC Comics. The splash page contribution to Williamson's Food for Thought, an incredible science fiction number 32, that had a November-December 1955 cover date, which is a highly detailed alien landscape, is regarded as a peak achievement in comic book illustration. Crankle only drew one solo story for EC, the unsigned Time to Leave in Incredible Science Fiction number 31, that has September-October 1955 cover date. Crankle inked many of Williamson's comic stories for Marvel and ACG in the 50s as well. During the late 1960s, he created cover paintings for Daw Books and Lancer Books. Uh, when Lancer revived Robert E. Howard, creator of Conan the Barbarian, with revisions uh, by Lee Sprague de Camp, Crankle was cited by cover artist Frank Frazetta as a consultant. Crankle uh, was known for regarding his own work as disposable and unimportant. But he did contribute art for the story we're about to read right now. Yeah. Uh, he wound up uh, passing away February 24th, 1983. Now into the story. H2O World pops right into the story. And you can immediately see some of that Crankle expertise here we've been talking about. Got a lot of nice waves on a choppy ocean. Uh, some kind of diver's yacht skims the waves. Uh, three young divers are looking to check out some domes made of diamond deep in the ocean. There's rumored to be cities within. You would think uh, you'd think this be a more popular spot for research. Yeah. With a, Un you know, underwater diamond. cities covered in, a, in domes <laughs> made of diamonds, and they look, they're the only <laughs> people around. Now they swim down to find, indeed, a submerged city draped in seaweed. Well, uh, but one of them notices that the balcony openings in the upper floors of these buildings do not have safety railings. They look like entrances, so they therefore surmise these were built underwater, not on land and then submerged later on. Then some mermen swim out and snatch the three trespassers. They're brought before a king merman. Though he looks pretty handsome and human for a merman. The other ones are really more like kind of elongated frogs, and this guy looks just like a dude. Uh, the merman tells them that their ancestors came from a civilization before ours that destroyed itself during World War III. It was the nukes that did it. Most mm -hmm. died, but some mutated and moved underwater for reasons. And uh, this merman got off lightly. He opens a door to reveal the Senate, a collection of misshapen, horrific monsters, and the, the kids faint dead away. Uh, King Merman says uh, he has the, he'll have their minds wiped and put them right back on the boat. 
and uh, this is a cautionary tale somehow. Yeah. Like, uh, like don't go, don't go diving into domed cities of mermen. At least if you if you don't see other people there, you know, because I really think that would have to be very, it, I you know, like they would have roped it off or something like that. Uh, yeah. I, I also kind of would have liked if they had talked a little more about King Merman's wife, uh, Ethel. Ethel. Yeah, it would have been interesting, <laughs> but they didn't. No, they sure did. Yeah. Uh, our next story is called Vampires Fly at Dusk. It's got a story by Archie Goodwin. He was born on September 8th, 1937 in Kansas City, Missouri. He and his family lived in many small towns along the Kansas-Missouri border, including Coffeyville. Uh, but he considered Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he spent his teen years at Will Rogers High School as his hometown. Goodwin moved to New York City to attend classes at what became the School of Visual Arts much like everyone else. Everyone was. else. If you, basically, <laughs> art and design or school of visual arts, that was your only ways to break into comics in the that 50s. That was it. Now, his first story written before he went into the Army was drawn by Al Williamson and Roy Crankle. It was published in 1962, just uh, just after his discharge from the Army. Uh, also drew the script Hermit for Harvey Comics in 1962. But a year later, he would contribute stories to this very inaugural issue of Creepy. Uh, with issue number two, he'd be credited as the editor and would soon edit the entire line of War or Horror magazines. Uh, Goodwin would pass away in New York City from cancer on March 1st, 1998, after battling the disease for 10 years. And that's a guy we definitely have to look at doing an expanded oh, episode. Of, I mean, he, he looms large in comics. We Everywhere. Just, yeah. we, just wanted to, we just cut it off here at uh, the creepy point. The art for this story is by Reed Leonard Crandall. He was born February 22nd, 1917 in Winslow, Indiana. Crandall graduated from from Newton High School in Newton, Kansas in 1935, and then attended the Cleveland School of Art in Cleveland, Ohio on a scholarship, graduating in 1939. With his schoolmate Frank Borth, Crandall found work painting a signs on storefront windows. A classmate, the son of a president of the Cleveland-based Newspaper Enterprise Association Syndicate, recommended Crandall for a job at NEA as a general art assistant where Crandall drew maps and other supporting material. Moving to New York with his mother and sister, Crandall found work at the fledgling medium of comic books, joining the Eisner, Eisner, sorry, the Eisner and Iger studio. Crandall drew for comic books from 1939 until 1973. His first, com- his first work appears in comics from publisher Quality Comics, and he was a mainstay of EC Comics during their heyday. And after that, he contributed this story to Creepy Number 1. He died of a heart attack on September 13, 1982, in Wichita, Kansas. Now, Vampires Fly at Dusk begins in Sicily. We're going to say during a period known as a long time ago, right? Like, mm-hmm, free yeah. electricity, but post-tuxedos. People are wearing uh, jackets and they have They're dressed for the, stuff. For the so, event, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some 19th century-ish, we're going to say. But uh, people are turning up dead, drained of blood. The villagers suspect Count Orsini and his wife Elena because they just moved to town. To make matters more suspicious, they're they're a pretty odd couple. Uh, They happen to sleep all day, and they stay up all night at the Count's uh, demand. Uh, He's always up before Elena and serves breakfast in bed. And she is always made to drink a big glass of tomato juice. Mm. Oh, boy. Now, the uh, chief inspector of the police drops by Count Orsini's to question him. His servants say that the Count was in the tower room working on his novel all evening. There's only one way up there, so they would have seen him leave if he were to, in fact, leave. Yeah. 
And of course, a man's servants would uh, never think to lie for him, no, right? Of course, no. I mean, the guy paying yourself? Yeah, really. Keeping, well, why would they do your, that? Keeping a roof over your head? Yeah. <laughs> uh, luckily, the uh, the inspector's satisfied, so he leaves. Uh, it's almost dawn, so Count Orsini tells his wife it's time for bed. Elena wants to throw the curtains open just once. But he's like, no, 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 off to, off to sleepy time for you. Yeah, off to nappy. So later uh, on from that, Count Orsini leaves Elena with some albums while he heads into the tower room to write that novel, of course. Mm-hmm. Elena can't find a certain record, so she climbs. Yeah, when I said albums, I meant vinyl records. This is actually a very hip comic for whatever reason. Uh, <laughs> so she climbs the stairs to the tower room to bug her husband about it and opens the door to find the room is empty. The room looks like a small library, and most of the books on the shelves are about vampires. And Elena finds a bloodstained shirt in a desk drawer. I mean, now she's just snooping, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But uh, And then the Count strolls in through a secret entrance. He's got a jar of blood with him. It's like, good, good, the, the, the problems are stacking up here, Count. Mad with fear and betrayal, Elena rushes down the stairs, Count Orsini pleading after her. Elena makes it to a window and throws open the drapes so the sunlight will vanquish the vampire. But it turns out the vampire was Elena all along. Oh. And now she's just a pile of dust. It's a pretty creative, a nice twist on that. I, I, I have to say, I didn't expect it either as I read it. No, I me like, either. Was, yeah. Well, that was cool. No, that was a good twist. Uh, our next story, Werewolf. A uh, story by Larry Ivy. Uh, we've already met him. A uh, story by Frank Frazetta. Born Frank Frazetta with two Z's. He's credited with one. Uh, on February 9th, 1928, uh, in Brooklyn, New York. He removed one Z from his last name early in his career to make his, same, make his name seem less clumsy. In 2010, a month before passing, Frank recalled, When I drew something, my grandmother would be the one to say it was wonderful and would give me a penny to keep it going. Sometimes I had nothing left to draw on but toilet paper. As I got older, I started drawing some pretty wild things from my age. I remember that the teachers were always mesmerized by what I was doing, so I had to look. So it was hard to learn anything from them. Uh, so I went to art school when I was a little kid, and even there, the teachers were flipping out. At age eight, Frazetta attended the Brooklyn Academy of Fine Arts. Of instructor Michael Falanja, Frazetta said in 1994, he didn't teach me anything really. He'd come and see where I was working, and he might say, "Very nice, very nice," but perhaps if you did this or that. But that's about it. We never had any great conversations. He spoke very broken English. He kind of left you on your own. I learned more from my friends there. In 1944, at age 16, Frazetta began working in in comics artist Bernard Bailey's studio doing pencil cleanups. His first comic book work was inking the eight-page story Snowman, penciled by John Junta. In the one-shot Tally Ho Comics in December 1944 cover date, published by Swappers Quarterly and Almanac Bailey Publishing Company. Swappers Quarterly. I, I need to know more about them. Uh, mm-hmm. Frazetta was soon drawing comic books in many genres, including westerns, fantasy, mystery, and historical drama. Some of his earliest work was in Funny Animal Comics, which he signed as Fritz. In the early 1950s, he worked for EC Comics, National Comics, including on the superhero feature Shining Knight, Avon Comics, and several other companies. Notice because of his work on the Buck Rogers covers for Famous Funnies, Frazetta started working with Al Cap on Cap's very popular comic strip, Little Abner. Uh, Frazetta was also producing his own strip, uh, that's Johnny Comet at the time, and as well as assisting Dan Barry on Flash Gordon Daly's strip. 
He married Eleanor Kelly in New York City in November 1956, and the two would have four children. In 1961, after nine years with Cap, Frazetta returned to the comic books. Uh, he also helped Harvey Kurtzman and Will Elder on three uh, stories of the body parody strip Little Annie Fanny in Playboy magazine. And just around the same time, he drew this story for Creepy Number 1. Uh, Frazetta would pass of a stroke on uh, May 10th, 2010 at a hospital near his residence in Fort Myers, Florida. That was a pretty long-storied life for him. And a, mm-hmm. an, uh, another guy upon whom we could expand, expand very much, yeah. greatly. Uh, Werewolf. The story here is that the big game hunter, Demon, has been summoned to the Gantiqua Valley in Africa. Not a real place. No. Uh, they are beset with a werewolf-slash-spirit, which they also named Gantiqua. So the valley was actually named after the monster, which explains why there's not a lot of tourism here. You know, it's not... Who'd go? They yeah. really should have called it, you know, Happy Valley or something like that. But mm-hmm. uh, Demon's... Demon's happy to slay the beast because he digs that fame and fortune. And there's a little cat and mouse with the werewolf in the jungle through this story, but eventually Demon tags it in the shoulder and fells the beast. While boasting, the werewolf turns into an old man who has just enough breath to thank Demon for freeing him from the curse. Because now... Demons the werewolf, but dun oh. They can't all. They can't all be winners, folks. I'm sorry. No, they that, sure that was all right. <laughs> what a dirty. What a prank. I know. Um, now our next story is Bewitched, story by Larry Ivy. This guy was very busy. Yeah, he did a um, lot here. <laughs> he sure did. Uh, art is by Gray Morrow. Uh, Dwight Graydon, or Gray Morrow, was born on March 7, 1934, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He would attend the Northside High School there. Uh, Gray enrolled in the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts in Chicago, Illinois, in late summer 1954, studying two nights a week for three months. He joined the city's Feldkamp Malloy Art Studio, uh, later being fired. Uh, Undaunted, he moved to New York City in the winter of 1955, and by the following spring, he'd met fellow young artists Al Williamson, Angelo Torres, and Wally Wood. Morrow sold his first comic book story, A Romance Tale, to Toby Press, which went out of business before it could be published. Uh, Morrow did two stories for another company, a a western with original characters and an adaptation of pulp fiction writer Robert E. Howard's The Tower of the Elephant. But... This company, too, went defunct. I hope he got some money before they did, but... Uh, Here's hoping. Through Williamson, Gray began contributing to Atlas Comics, drawing several supernatural fantasy stories, that, plus at least four westerns and one war story on titles cover dated July 1956 to June 1957. Gray illustrated several stories for E.C. Comics in the 1950s and did covers for some of their picto-fiction titles that followed those eliminated by the Comics Code Authority. In late 1956, Morrow was drafted into the U.S. Army, stationed at Incheon and Walmido Island, South Korea. I hope I sure didn't say either of those correctly. (laughs) He did, quote, illustrations and paintings for the Officers Club, day rooms, insignias on helmets for their parades. You know, anything and everything. That was my official duty. After being discharged in 1958, Angelo Torres found gray work at Gilbertson Drawing Classics Illustrated. He worked for Gilbertson for a few years and then moved out over to Warren Publishing, where his first work would be the story we're going to read right now. He was passed he passed away on November 6, 2001, in Kunkeltown, Pennsylvania, from an apparently self-inflicted gunshot wound. Hmm. In Bewitched, an unnamed guy and his wife Maud are moving into their into her grandmother's old house. The fella finds a book on witchcraft and has a laugh about it. Maud warns him that Grandma told tales of local witches that did witchy things. 
and uh, he pro- you know the, I think was it the devil will, will get him for that right right exactly you know, one of the things Maud says mm-hmm. uh, now he thinks this is all is all ridiculous nonsense uh, he reads a passage in the book that says that every time you burn a holly branch on Douglas Hill a witch dies. This fellow's all, <laughs> wouldn't that be a kick? And he's he's getting set to do it as a gag, of course. I mean, this guy really thinks this is way funnier than anybody. You know, he's he's rolling in the aisles laughing reading mm-hmm. this book. Uh, and yeah, this will end well, I'm sure. Of course. Yeah. What so, could go wrong? This guy heads to the florist to buy a holly branch, and he lets slip that he's going to burn a branch and kill him some witches. <laughs> An old woman with a black cat hanging out at the florist overhears this dope's boasting, and then she shuffles off. We're guessing to do some of those witchy things, I have a feeling. Maybe. So this guy schleps up a winding road in his car to the top of Douglas Hill. Then he gets out and tries to burn a holly branch. He has trouble lighting a match, but eventually gets a fire going. And we'd like to point out, he's all alone doing this. Okay? Yeah. The gag of pretending to kill a witch is witnessed by no one at all. It's just He's just entertaining himself here. He's having a ball. Yeah, it's not like a sleepover and he's shouting Bloody Mary into you know a mirror. I mean? like, this, this is you think this, this is for his own audience. He's just yeah. having a he's having a good time. <laughs> now, when the branch finally lights on fire, there's a horrific scream and giant eyes appear in the forest. This guy takes off like a shot back to his car. Uh, he heads to the all-night diner for a cup of coffee and to mull over what had just happened. There, three crones are sitting in a booth, eyeing him suspiciously. This guy heads home and climbs into bed with his wife. Uh, he's resigned to make this all better tomorrow, doing something with the witchcraft book he found, maybe. Uh, I think it's a little too late for that, fella. You, yeah. you already you already burnt the branch. I think yeah, I think you burnt you burnt the branch. You burnt the bridge. That's how it is. Yeah. <laughs> that's 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 like a you need that on a sampler. Uh, now, uh, once he slips into sleep, the guy finds himself in a psychedelic world of machine-made horrors, or as much as could be rendered in a black and white with the thing. Um, there's a loud ticking that seems omnipresent. A voice announces that it's a bomb, and he's got to find it, or it'll explode. And so the man starts tearing through the scenery, looking for this bomb. Then, suddenly, the scene shifts, and he's in a prehistoric world being chased by a triceratops. (laughs) Then the guy runs for a while, and the the scene shifts again. He wakes up in bed, exclaiming that he's been bewitched. Maud asks him what's wrong, and the man is doubled over in pain. Their daughter runs in the room holding a doll and a pin, and the doll looks just like her daddy. She says that a nice old lady came to their brownie meeting and gave all the girls dolls and pins. Long story short, this guy's going to be feeling groin pain for the foreseeable future until he rounds up all those dolls and pins. I want to know Very what, what, what was the, the two scenes where he went to the machine world and then the Triceratops? And then the Triceratops. <laughs> what, what, was, what was that? What did, uh, they just said, uh, I'd like to draw some machinery and, and dinosaurs. I guess that was all that was. Might have been curdled milk in that coffee. Uh, Possibly. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, this brings us to our main event. That's right. This is the success story. The story is by Archie Goodwin, who we met earlier. The art is by Al Williamson, who we also met earlier. All right. Yeah, now, the success story begins with three panels showing the same long shot of a dock covered in a misty fog. Over the course of these panels, three shambling zombies crawl onto the deck and lurch toward the reader. Caption reads, The waterfront at night. From the river's murky depths, a no longer human shape rises and is followed by another. And yet another. Their destination, the shore. What do they want? Well, if you don't know, I guess we're in big trouble. <laughs> really? I hope, I hope somebody knows. Uh, at the bottom of the page, the scene shifts to a man in a checkered sports coat, smoking a pipe and ruling panel borders at an art table. 
This is Baldo's Smudge, and this is his studio, his art studio, where an elderly man named Mr. Mac and Baldo's wife Martha are fawning over his work. Mr. Mac goes, Baldo, the success of your comic strip has been phenomenal. I speak for the rest of the syndicate when I say we're proud to be distributing it for you. Martha goes, all due to Baldo's genius. Start to finish, it's his doing. Fascinating stuff. Beautifully written and drawn. Baldo, I'd like to know how you managed to do it. And so Baldo reminisces and starts by saying, Well, Mr. Mac, it's a long story. Baldo positively beams with pride as he tells his life's tale through a series of captions. But the panels show us how things really went down. Yeah, Baldo says, Like many others before me, I started as an assistant to a famous cartoonist, where I learned the tricks of the trade. We see a younger Baldo, uh, but still wearing a checkered sport coat. He's standing in the studio of some cigar-smoking unnamed cartoonist. That unnamed cartoonist says, Get me some coffee, smudge. Then you can finish rolling those panel borders. We move on to the next memory, and Baldo says, Through those early years, my wife Martha was a source of constant inspiration. The panel shows that she's very harsh and critical. She says, Think I want to spend the rest of my life with some creep who rolls panel borders? You get your own script, or your own strip, or I get out. And then onto the next memory, Baldo says, While some did not accept my strip immediately, comments indicated I was on the right track. And a pipe-smoking publisher or syndicate man looks over Baldo's work with disgust. He says, This stinks. Drawing's amateurish. Inking's bad, and the writing, pooey. You ought to look for work ruling panel borders. And uh, the next memory, Baldo says, Hard work and initiative do not go unrewarded. One day, my big break came. We see an exterior shot of a busy city street. The word balloon coming from one of several hundred apartment windows. It's Martha, and she goes, Baldo, Uncle Marvin died. With the cash he left, we can hire someone to write, draw, and ink the strip. It'll be sold in no time. But, but with someone writing the strip, someone drawing and someone else inking, how will it really be my strip? Jerk, don't let any of the assistants know others are working for you. Each man will suppose you do the rest of the work. So, Baldo continues with storytelling to Mr. and Mrs. Mac, or Mr. Mac and Martha, while once again the panels reveal the truth of things. In each of these panels, he is approached by a different assistant, while he passively rules panel borders. Controlling all the elements that make up a syndicated comic strip is a fantastic job. There's the writing. And a fellow with white hair is speaking to Baldo from the past, clutching a manuscript. I've been working day and night, but I've churned out scripts for another episode, Mr. Smudge. Just leave them there. I'll start penciling as soon as I finish ruling these panel borders. And in his next memory, Baldo says, The layout and penciling. We see a younger-looking guy, also in a checkered sports coat, pull some, pulling some artwork from a portfolio. He says, I've been working day and night, but I penciled another week's worth, Mr. Smudge. Just leave them there. I'll start inking as soon as I finish ruling these panel borders. And in his next memory, Baldo says, Lettering and inking. See a stern-looking young guy in a black turtleneck and jacket, and he's handing over some artwork. He says, I've been working day and night, but I've got another batch inked, Mr. Smudge. Just leave them there. I'll start writing another episode as soon as I finish ruling these panel borders. 
Baldo continues to reminisce on his earlier days. With so much work, the employment of assistance might seem necessary, but the contribution of such a person is hardly worth the pampering and training they require. Now Baldo remembers each of his assistants approaching him with their demands. The writer goes, You work me all the time. Scripts are backlogging. I deserve a big raise and some credit on the strip. The artist says, I'm always working. Months ahead on pencils. How about a big fat raise in a credit line? Finally, the anchor goes, You're working me to death. We're so far ahead, I don't know what year I'm working on. I want more money and my name on the strip. And now at some point, these three creators meet each other in a bar, and narrating the scene, Baldo says, And no matter how hard you try to keep things straight, once in a while the wires will get crossed and a crisis will arise. The writer goes, Hey, fellas, writing the Baldo smudge script seems, it keeps, keeps me so busy. Why don't we get together much anymore? You write smudge strip, I pencil it. Right? Pencil? I ink it. Something's fishy been going on in here. The three men hot-footed over to Baldo's studio and confront him. We're on to you, Smudge. Without us, your strip is nothing. We want what's coming to us. Now Baldo continues to narrate his memories while the panel shows us the horror. He says, Face with the worst, I find I can fall back on preparedness, resourcefulness, and determination. Qualities that make my strip as great as it is today. And like you do, Baldo pulls a gun from his desk drawer and shoots the three men dead. And only three shots, so uh, he must have gotten, like, precise aim from ruling all those panel borders. Yeah, right? you just figure out the angles right away, right? Just, yeah, it's all math in his head. He's good. <laughs> uh, Baldo then trusses up all the bodies, drives them down to the waterfront, and unceremoniously kicks them into the water. Why do you think I had you doing so much advance work done? I don't need you guys anymore. But back to the present day... Inspirational, Baldo. Say, my son is a great fan of yours. How about doing an original drawing for him? Uh, original drawing? Or maybe I could just autograph an old strip. Nothing will thrill him like an original drawing. Uh, Martha Smudge, who obviously knows the deal, runs some interference. Baldo works best alone, Mr. Mac. Why don't you come to me with the with me to the delicatessen, pick up sandwiches, and he'll have something for your little boy when we get back. And once they're gone, Baldo starts searching through his archives. He says, Fat old goat, if he weren't head of the syndicate, I'd throw him out. Maybe I can trace something out of one of these books. What's that noise at the door? Martha certainly isn't stupid enough to bring Mac back already. Baldo opens the door, and three hideous waterlogged zombies burst through the door menacingly. Later, Mr. Mac and Martha return to Baldo's studio. And it's been totally destroyed. Baldo, dear, we're back. Baldo? Good Lord, this place is a wreck. What happened here? It's not like Baldo to leave the place like this. He's usually so neat. Strange. Puddles of water and slime on the floor. Looks like something out of the river's been through. Or an average teenage boy. That's... Girls are grosser than boys. Uh, you got a point there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to have to scold Baldo when he comes back. Such strange behavior. Mr. Mac picks up a drawing lying face down on the floor, and he looks paled when he sees it. Well, what a curious drawing he's done, and I've never seen him use colored inks before. I wouldn't count on seeing your husband ever ag- well, I'm sorry. I wouldn't count on your husband ever being back, Mrs. Smudge. You see, this isn't drawn with colored ink. It's blood. 
And the picture is of Baldo recoiling in horror as three zombies converge on him. And one of them is wielding a T-squid. <laughs> I like that little, that little tidbit <laughs> there. That must be the uh, penciler. It's insult to injury. Exactly. Beat with his own <laughs> T-square. Uh, to wrap up, Creepy gives us the uh, epilogue. He says, well, what did you think of that pain, pals? Oh, Baldo really got smudged, didn't he? But you can't say he didn't ask for it. And anyway, the drawing Mr. Mac got was much better than Baldo could have possibly done himself. So our story ends with everybody satisfied. <laughs> yes, very satisfied, including Mrs. Smudge, for Baldo left a lot of loot. <laughs> well, that is a relief. <clears throat> Yeah, I don't know why we should care about that, quite frankly. No, not really. uh, But anyway, that's nice for her, I guess. Now, a little more about this particular story, which is the obviously the main story of this, and this is the one that I remember seeing in an uh, old comic uh, history book years ago. Uh, the practices described in this strip, the practices described in this strip, were fairly common in the heyday of newspaper comic strips. A very popular cartoonist might have two or more assistants working, uh, though they would be the ones doing things like ruling the panel borders, not the other way around. Uh, a lot of artists got their start this way. Think of the many people that ghosted Will Eisner's newspaper comic, The Spirit, for the final years of its existence. I mean, it's like a cast of stars, you know, a cast sure. of guys that would become really well known later. And if you can't think of any. You can check out our bio on Will Eisner and Weird Comics History, episode 25, in our archives. Now, it is said that the success story is about a specific comic strip artist, one who actually did just sign his name to, to the work of his assistants. Don Sherwood was born September 12, 1930, in rural New York State. As a teenager, Sherwood sent samples of his art to Chester Gould, the creator of Dick Tracy. Gould was impressed and wrote back, telling Sherwood that he had talent and encouraged him to come to his city of Chicago to study the craft. Sherwood took the advice, leaving high school, and enrolled at the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts. While in Chicago, Sherwood visited Gould regularly to observe his, car to observe his cartooning habits and worked as a copy boy at the Chicago Daily News. Also at that time, Sherwood enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps Reserves. He was called into active duty and fought with the 1st Marine Division in the Korean War, spending 18 months in combat operations in the Korean mountainside. This experience had a transformative effect on Sherwood. Upon returning to the United States, Sherwood moved to New York and resumed his cartooning career by working as a byline staff artist for the New York Mirror. He was an illustrator on the comic strips Cotton Woods and Will, Will Chance, and then as an assistant for George Wonder on the adventure strips Terry and the Pirates. At a time, it must be said, the strip was in a real wane of popularity. Mm. Sherwood longed, however, to create a strip of his own and showcase the bravery of the United States Marines. In 1963, when he was 32 years old, Sherwood would launch Dan Flagg. The strip, featuring a Marine hero, was an instant success, and it appeared in 400 newspapers and in most major metropolitan markets, including the New York Daily News, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, and the Washington Post. Dan Flagg was originally syndicated with the McNaughton Syndicate, uh, later moving to Bell McClure. Sherwood was invited to lunch with President Lyndon B. Johnson at the White House, joining four other famed military cartoonists. They were Milton Kniff, Mort Walker, Bill Maudlin, and George Wonder. He was a presenter at the 1964 World's Fair in New York City, and Dan Flagg Day with ceremonies were held there and in Philadelphia. Sherwood received a plaque from the U.S. Marine Corps Combat Correspondents Association 
and a citation from the National Press Club. In an interview with George Evans the, in The Warren Companion, that came out in 2001 from Tomorrow's Publishing, the EC Comics veteran revealed, I wound up doing the strip, Terry and the Pirates, under George Wonder for 13 years. Don Sherwood had been hired as an assistant or a ghost or whatever, and it did not work out. He worshipped Flash Gordon creator Alex Raymond. If you'll remember, his style was totally swiped from Raymond, and Wonder soon found this out. But his wife was a genius at research, organization, filing, and the like, so Wonder kept Sherwood on. Anyway, Sherwood stayed on with Wonder, but at a given point, he inherited a considerable amount of money for the time. And as I was told this part of it, he decided this was going to be his in with the syndicated comics, and he proceeded to invent the strip Dan Flagg, and he got in touch with various people whose work suited what he wanted to do, and he did only the bits that appealed to him. So he was using Angelo Torres and Al Williamson as artists, Archie Goodwin for the scripts, and he put out the story of a marine hero. Evans continued, uh, Don called me and asked if I would do such and such for him, and I guess it was because he had alienated everybody in one way or another, and was going down the line to get everybody he could. So I think I inked or did a week's work for him. I told him that was all I was going to do. He said, I went to visit him at the studio he had there, and would you believe he already had a carpet made there, handmade with pictures of Dan Flagg woven into the carpet. He really thought he was going to set the world on fire, I guess. Alden McWilliams also did work for him. Anyway, he was using all these people and signing this work with his own name, of which he was apparently doing little or nothing. Mm. When asked if Sherwood's finishers were upset at not getting paid, Evans explained, No, he paid. At least he paid me, and I assumed he paid the rest. But it was the business of his ego. He lived in a Don Sherwood fantasy world. Actually, I think when the stuff was all finished and put together by the rest of us, by all these people, he believed it was his creation and demeaned. He didn't with me, uh, because I wasn't with him long enough, but I got the feeling that he demeaned and almost insulted some of the guys. As the U.S. became more involved in Vietnam, pro-military comics lost popularity, and Dan Flagg would end in 1967, four years after it began. Or, uh... Don Sherwood ran out of pre-drawn scripts done by more capable creators. It could be either one of the You two. be the judge be, on that one. You be the judge yeah. of that, yeah. <laughs> uh, Sherwood would pass away on March 6, 2010, and he was buried with full military honors at a Quantico National Cemetery. Yeah, so that was a pretty crazy story. I remember reading that as a kid and not even thinking that it was related to something specific or as sure. specific as this, where he's really, literally boasting in the story. Baldo Smudge about how he didn't need any assistance. They just are too hard to deal with. Meanwhile, uh, they were doing this whole thing. Anyway, there's, the thing. Yep. there's one more short story in this book, and to round it out, creepy number one, we're going to read Pursuit of the Vampire, story by Archie Goodwin, who I'm getting sick of seeing around here. Uh-huh. And then art by uh, Angelo Torres, who was born April 14th, 1932 in Santorce, Puerto Rico. Torres was friends with, a, with artist Al Williamson in the early 1950s and occasionally assisted him on work for EC Comics. His first solo EC story, An Eye for an Eye, an incredible science fiction number 33, that was a January-February 1956 cover date, was rejected by the Comics Code and did not see print for the first time until 1971. In this story, a man and a woman fight back hordes of monsters on a foreign world or in some far-flung future, only to be murdered by other humanoids because the protagonists have a third eye between their shoulder blades. Does that 
I mean, it seems pretty tame. I don't really don't know what the... A little the, uh, bit, yeah. I don't, I don't know what could be the problem. I, maybe know, it's the eye fixation. Maybe, exactly. They thought they thought the eye was too uh, too sexy or something. But Yeah. Uh, so when EC Comics' line failed after the enforcement of the comics code, Torres went to Atlas Comics and drew a number of short stories for their mystery titles in 1956 to 57, such as Astonishing, Spellbound, Uncanny Tales, Marvel Tales, and many others. And then... This story in the first issue of Creepy Magazine. Aha. In pursuit of the vampire, it's Austria, late 19th century. A funeral procession is headed out to the Burgermeister, a post-funeral. Seems two girls were found with all their blood drained, and they want to organize a search for just who was behind it. Uh, a Burgermeister is a town mayor, incidentally. Yeah, you learn something new every day. There you go. Uh, now they you, have you, thought the, you thought it was the place where they got the burgers, obviously. You thought... I thought it was the guy who sold the burgers. Yeah, that's yeah. all. <laughs> I thought he had a giant hamburger for a head. That'd be nice. Uh, (laughs) They happen upon a stranger, and they tell him this information. The stranger informs them that what they seek is a vampire. So now the Burgermeister is ready to get this search going, but the stranger says they should begin by looking at the girls' graves because they're going to be vampires now. Probably. So then they head over to the girls' graves, and, and it's now empty. One of the girls' graves is now empty with the casket thrown open. And, like, didn't they, those guys just come here after the funeral? Like, you know, how long could it have been? Like, you know, literally, did, did, did everybody hang around a little bit to see what might happen? Anyway, uh, the stranger grabs some splinters of wood from the casket, and they head to a mausoleum where the other girl is interred. Uh, this stranger's already brought a mallet conveniently as well. They show up just in time to find the girl that left her grave entering the mausoleum. The stranger rushes in and stakes both girls, but good. And now... Everything is fine. Uh, what about the original vampire? You know, the one that... I said everything is fine! Actually, the stranger and the Burgermeister are strolling around the cemetery because things weren't creepy enough for them. <laughs> uh, the stranger notices the Burgermeister doesn't cast a reflection in a nearby pond. Does that mean he's a vampire? I think that means he's a vampire. He's a vampire. The Burgermeister is about to kill the stranger, but he's got an agenda of his own. The stranger is a werewolf. And uh, Billy Joel is the stranger, therefore Billy Joel is probably a werewolf. By the transitive property, right? That's how, mm-hmm. that's, how, that's just mm-hmm. pure math right there. Uh, Piano man and werewolf. I, you know, I'll tell you, it explains a lot. It really, you know what I mean? Yes. Now, now that I say it, now that you say it, so uh, that does conclude... The first issue of Creepy Magazine. Chris, do you remember seeing this as a little kid at all? No. When I was not very, at all. When I was very, very little, it was, I guess, still around. And I remember seeing it literally just, to me, a magazine with the, the title Creepy or Eerie was salacious enough just to have that title. Sure. You might, you might as well have been, you know, been called Nazi death camp or something like that. I mean, I, you know, I was like, well, I'm talking like six, seven, you know, very young. So, uh, but yeah, this is, this was a good time for me, especially to yeah. see these really talented artists, boy. I mean, this is, absolutely this is really some, uh, this is really a showcase. As a matter of fact, the uh, copy we looked at kind of had some resolution problems, right? But uh, mm-hmm. if you can, some if, you, smudges. if you can get the reprint or look at these, this is some, Seriously nice artwork, folks, and creepy. And I think it pretty much follows through the rest of uh, the line. They kind of keep digging into those classic 50s horror artists. So That's uh, beautiful work. Yeah. Maybe we'll see more of that in the future. But for right now, 
We're going to take a quick little break to uh, calm our hearts down and (laughs) settle our nerves so we stop being so scared, and we'll come back and wrap up all about James Warren and another little tidbit that I just felt like shoehorning in. Now, uh, Rush Jones was the founding editor of Creepy in 1964, but a year later, Archie Goodwin succeeded him with Joe Orlando acting as a behind-the-scenes story editor. Goodwin, who would become one of comics' foremost and most influential writers, helped to establish the company as a leader in its field. From 1965 to 1966, Warren also published the four-issue Blazing Combat, a war comics magazine with anti-war themes, which was a little bit controversial at the time. After 17 issues of Creepy and 11 of Eerie, Goodwin resigned as an editor in 1967. The movement of Warren's operations from Philadelphia to New York City, combined with a change in distributors and a downturn in the market, imposed a cash flow problem on Warren. Goodwin, along with all the artists except for Tom Sutton and Rock Mastrocerio, Mastrocerio, who passed away shortly thereafter, departed the company. (laughs) During the next two and a half years, Warren's publications consisted primarily of reprints from the early issues. During this period, a variety of editors ran the magazines, including Bill Parenta, Nicola Cudi, and James Warren himself. Things started to pick up again for Warren in 1969 with the premiere of its third horror magazine, Vampirella. Many of Warren's original artists returned during this period, as would Goodwin for a period of time in 1970 and 71. After Goodwin's second departure, J.R. Cochran became the managing editor, with, and the art director was Billy Graham. In 1971, Warren began using artists from the Barcelona studio of Spanish agency Selecciones Ilustrada. Over the next few years, Spanish artists would dominate the magazines, and a lot of them in comics too, right? Yeah, that was right. A, that, that was that was all over the place, but the a lot of non-American. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the, in, the, in the 70s, they were definitely going international, looking for a lot of uh, new and cheaper artists. Yes, that was a lot of it. Now, additional Spanish art, Spanish artists from SI Valencia Studio also began freelancing for Warren in 1974. But in 1973, new editor Bill Dubay, who had originally joined the company as an artist early in 1970, transformed Warren's magazines to create a uniform style. The following year, Warren Publishing was dissolved and replaced by Warren Communications, a sister company James Warren had founded in 1972. Dubay was editor for all three of Warren's horror magazines until 1976, except for a short period of time in 1974 where Goodwin returned to edit four issues of Creepy and two of Vampirella for some reason. During Couldn't this, get rid of them. I guess. It really seems yeah. like these guys Can't are get it coming out of his back. Blood. Uh, during this time, the frequency of Warren's magazines was increased to nine issues a year. 
The first known interracial kiss in mainstream comics occurred in Warren's Creepy Number 43, that was a January 1972 cover, in The Men Who Called Him Monster by writer Don McGregor and artist Luis Garcia. McGregor said in 2001 that the kiss was actually due to the artist misunderstanding the line, this is the clincher in the script. <laughs> <laughs> in uh, 1974, DeBay oversaw a new black and white magazine, The Spirit, which revived acclaimed writer-artist Will Eisner's mass detective of the 1940s and early 50s in the newspaper Sunday Supplements. Uh, the newspaper Sunday Supplements. The magazine featured new covers by Eisner and an occasional reprint in color. That same year, Warren debuted Comics with an X International, a color magazine reprinting earlier Warren stories. After Dubay's departure, Louise Jones, his former assistant, headed the editorial staff. That was from 1976 through 1980. Toward the end of Dubay's period of editorship, many American artists had returned to the magazine. Those included John Severin, Alex Toth, and Russ Heath. Former DC Comics publisher Carmine Infantino would also join the company during this period, and he would pencil over 50 stories. Much like the wave of Spanish artists that dominated throughout the, the mid-1970s, a number of artists from the Philippines would begin contributing during this period. That's right. You're going into the early 80s, if I recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dubay returned as editor after Jones' departure. See, so they keep coming back. They keep uh, coming back. But he used the alias Will Richardson. I don't know why. <laughs> why not? Maybe, maybe <laughs> I don't want people to know I came back or something. But uh, toward the end of the 1970s, Warren published two new magazines edited by Dubay. This is the science fiction anthology 1984 starting in 1978 but they would change its name to 1994 two years later <laughs> Not for, they were like yeah maybe we should have <laughs> should have reached a little further than that uh and in 1979 uh magazine the rook starring a time traveling adventurer whose stories had appeared in eerie since 1977 james warren's bad health combined with changing tastes and business problems led to internal turmoil and editorial turnover the company suspended publishing in late 1981. Editor Bill Dubay left in 82, and Warren declared bankruptcy in 1983. In August 1983, Harris Publications acquired company assets at auction and published new and reprinted Vampirella comics. Creepy number 146, that was summer 1985 cover, uh, continuing the numbering of the original series and containing both new and reprinted material, Creepy, the limited series, which was a four-issue miniseries of news stories, and some other Warren-related comics also published by Harris. A 1998 lawsuit by James Warren resulted in his reacquisition of the rights to Creepy and Eerie. Hmm. By publishing graphic stories in a magazine format to which the code did not apply, Warren paved the way for such later graphic story magazines as the American version of Heavy Metal, Marvel Comics' own Epic Illustrated, and Psycho, uh, and other stories, uh, other series from Skywall Publications. In 2008, he established a new venture, Jim Warren Publishing. Dark Horse Comics began issuing reprints with with the ongoing licensed series Creepy Archives, that was in 2008, and began publishing new material with Creepy Volume 2 in 2009 and Eerie Volume 2 in 2012. And uh, not to speak too dark, though, it's a good thing he apparently is still alive. Yeah. So still doing his thing. Uh, and this is just kind of a, an aside thing. We probably would never get to this otherwise, but... It's one of my favorite, personal favorite, weird comics history stories. I want to talk about eerie publications. Also because I know uh, collectors sometimes can get confused. I think everyone that goes <laughs> to collect Warren eventually gets 
confused by one of these magazines I'm about to, we're, we're about to talk about. So Erie Publications was also a publisher of black and white horror anthology magazines. Started off by comic book artist and 1970s magazine entrepreneur Myron Fass. He was born March 29, 1926 in Brooklyn, New York. From 1948 until that post-comics code point, mid-1950s industry contraction, Fast illustrated for a multitude of publishers, including Ace Periodicals, Avon Comics, Charlton Comics, Fawcett Comics, Feature Comics, Fox Comics, Lev Gleason Publications, Magazine Enterprises, Marvel Comics, Story Comics, Street and Smith Comics, and Trojan Comics. So everyone but national, it looks like almost. Mm-hmm, it looks much. like it, yeah. Uh, Fast produced some of the an EC, I guess. Fast produced some of his this material with the S.M. Iger Studio from 1949 to 1953. In 1956, Fast pu- packaged the Whitestone Publishing title Lunatical, one of the first imitators of EC's Mad Magazine, and the girly magazine Photorama and the monster magazine Shock Tales soon followed. By the beginning of the 1960s, Fast was publishing his own material under the company name Tempest Publications. It was during this period that Fast launched the uh, pinup girl, pinup girly mags Pick, Buccaneer, Poor Boy, and Jaguar. Huh. In uh, 1966, William Harris's son, Stanley R. Harris, partnered with Fast to form the black and white horror magazine publisher, Erie Publications. Clearly looking to capitalize on the po- popularity of Warren Publishing's magazine, even down to stealing the name of one of that <laughs> publisher's fairy magazines. So Warren had the magazine Erie and Erie the publication itself. Just to confuse everybody, yeah. Yes. Uh, now, this would kind of be like if someone started up a book publisher named Harry Potter, for instance. But uh, Pro- <laughs> Produce no Harry Potter stories. just to, Because just... those belong to someone else. Exactly. Well, how could they, yeah. <laughs> now, Erie publishes titles, uh, all of which featured grisly, lurid color covers. They would include Weird, Horror Tales, Terror Tales, Tales from the Tomb, Tales of Voodoo, and Witches' Tales. New material was mixed with reprints from 1950s pre-comics code horror comics, since original flats and film could be bought for a song. Uh, The covers are at best, and by that we mean the worst. The original work slopped with an acrylic paint to expose or create cleavage or Ed Gore, or to turn a vampire into a zombie for whatever reason. I'm going to have to put some examples up on the blog. you got to see this to believe it. Now, inferior stories were also retouched with extra gore and smut, and sometimes truncated, so it was uh, so it was unintelligible. Yeah, you, could, you couldn't understand them. They would just cut, chop off they the end, end, or they cut yeah. out the middle. It was really crazy. Uh, in the 1970s, under the company named Countrywide Publications, Myron Fast began producing more one-shots with magazines on such topics as the Kennedy assassination, Elvis Presley's death, and the shooting of Hustler publisher Larry Flint. As such, Fast was responsible for almost every bottom-of-the-barrel publication to come out in the decade. If any sleaze or exploitation magazine was successful enough, his company would imitate it often multiple times. Fast's standard of success was 20,000 copies sold per issue. At this time, he was known as the biggest multi-title newsstand magazine publisher in the country. Other subjects covered by countrywide publications were softcore pornography, professional wrestling, UFOs, punk rock, horror films, and firearms. Mark J. Seifer, Ph.D. and proponent of telekinesis and ESP, wrote in 1997, Although we had managed to produce four issues of the Journal of Occult Studies, with articles on pyramid power, synchronicity, Yuri Geller, and the physics of consciousness, 
My colleague Howard was not content. One day he returned from New York as editor-in-chief of two separate national magazines, Ancient Astronauts and ESP. He had simply walked into countrywide publications and pitched the publisher Myron Fass on both topics. How'd you do it? I said, completely amazed at this most recent coup. I figured that if the guy could have magazines on remote-controlled airplanes and show dogs, they could have one on ESP and extraterrestrials. I pitched each topic, and to my amazement, Myron gave me both. As long as I can keep the circulation above 20,000, he doesn't care what it's on, he said. You could do one on toilet seats. And also, creator of Creepy and Eerie for Warren and published author Russ Jones recalled, Vietnam was, blister- was the blistering store of the soul of America, and the last thing readers wanted was a war mag. But we did know it uh, at the time. Jim phoned me one day and said that we had a major problem. Another publisher he'd heard was planning to- on coming out with a knockoff of Creepy with our title Eerie. I believe that publisher was Myron Fast, who had published a comic book with the title before the code came in. What, we, what could we do to protect our new title yet to be released? Warren had an Ashcan edition of Erie printed overnight. This was a small digest uh, version something. Jim said this would protect the title the way it, and the way things turned out, I guess he was right. Note, there was a comic book titled Eerie before this, uh, actually two, uh, both published by Avon Publishing. There was a one-shot in 1974 and a 17-issue series that ran from cover dates May-June 1951 through August-September 1954, but uh, Myron didn't publish those. No. Uh, though he might have contributed artwork to them, he was a rather prolific fellow. Yeah, right around that time, so possible. <laughs> Now, during this period, Fast was known to wear a loaded gun to work. Uh, why not? Erie stayed in business until 1981, although co-owner Harris left in 1976 after a series of disputes with the Mercurial Fast. Uh, according to rumors, Myron Fast beat up Stanley Harris. Uh, kind of reads like a high school mathlete squabble, doesn't I know. it? Myron and Stanley are fighting. It's like, geez, what is it? <laughs> Someone pinched their nose. Yeah, really. (laughs) By the mid-1980s, Fass had become increasingly erratic, both in his behavior and his publishing output. He moved to Ocala, Ocala, Florida even, where he ran a gun shop and continued to publish mostly firearm-related magazines. At this time, Fass published under the name CFV Publishers and called himself Chief Miriam Filey Ross. (laughs) Okay. Uh, his, His son David worked with him. In the mid-1990s, Fass and his son David were still in Florida publishing gun magazines and other titles under the company name Creative Arts. Uh, no relation to the video game company. Uh, make sure we know that. For heaven's sake, uh, don't, don't confuse them, people. <laughs> now, according to former employees, Jeff, employee Jeff Goodman, by this time, Fass was showing signs of paranoia and would not talk to anyone but his son. Fast wound up passing away in 2006 in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. We don't even have a date because he was that was that elusive. He was that yes, paranoid that and protective. So, yeah, I just wanted to go through that because I don't think we'll ever have read one of those magazines. I don't right. see why we would. It'd be very weird. I've, I've seen them, and you actually can see them. They're pretty cheap in the, uh, you know, you go to a convention or something. Sure. Uh, people will bring them out, but it's just such a crazy... I don't know. There are a lot of guys like this in the world and in publishing. P.T. Barnum types, you know what I mean? Like sure. opportunists, we'll call them. And uh thought this is our chance to talk about him. There's a good picture I'm going to try to get it to of him holding a gun, like like posing with a gun. And the, <laughs> the barrel is, I'm not kidding, the barrel is about two feet long. It's oh, it's so weird. It's like such a weird, dirty, hairy, almost cartoonish gun from like the mind of Rob Liefeld or something. 
<clears throat> but anyway, if you would like to talk to us about James Warren, Warren Publishing, Creepy, Eerie, Vampirella, any of the artists we talked about today, Myron Fast, or even Firearms, you may write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic history. Tumble us on Tumblr at cosmicteamailhistory.tumblr.com. We're on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can see our weekly readings over at Weird, our weekly writings rather, at WeirdScienceDCComics.com, and you can check out Chris's daily writings on DC Comics, uh, past, present, and well, not future. Uh, at you never Chris, know. <laughs> maybe Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com, where he does review a different DC comic every single day of the week, picking from any point he likes. Even kind of in the early 2000s recently. Or sort of yeah, like around there. That weird, that weird, the second go round of the throw anything at the wall era of DC, That's where like uh, a post infinite crisis time, right? That's how I look at that. Right in that in that neighborhood, yeah. Um, now you can also check us out on our show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where we will put hopefully a picture of a man carrying a very strange gun this week. That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> show notes for a lot of our shows, not all of them, but uh, a lot of them are up there, where you can find some uh, extra information, extra pictures, extra videos. All sorts of nice links, stuff like that. Yeah. Also, that is where you can also find our past issues ordered in a in a way that can be useful that you can to follow. people. Yes. Yeah. We know the Podbean uh, feed is a mess, and it's never going to change. So go over nope. to weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com if you want to uh, sift through the archives a little easier. But uh, I think that's all we got from this week. Chris, got anything else for him? Nope. That'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill spookily. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight. For my monster from his slab began to rise. And suddenly, to my surprise, he did the match. He did the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. He did the match. It caught on in a flash. He did the mash. He did the monster mash. From my laboratory in the castle east to the master bedroom where the vampires feast. The ghouls all came from their humble abode to get a jolt from my electrode. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. They did the mash.